If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited-time offer, so act now. My name is Rob Gorski, and you're listening to the Autism Dad Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. I really do appreciate your time, and I hope that you guys are doing well. I've been doing really good lately, and I just, I hope that you guys are doing the same. What I'm doing today is a little bit different than I've done prior to this, or at least not in a long time. This entire episode is devoted to COVID, the vaccines, and kind of updating everybody on the facts, like where we are, where we're headed, what the projections look like going forward. We'll talk about the variants, the concerns surrounding the variants. We'll answer questions about uh, the vaccines, what life is going to be like once we're vaccinated, why it's important that we get vaccinated. You know, what, what is what is normal going to look like after this is all said and done? So it's a really important episode. I really hope that you guys stay tuned and pay attention because it'll help you to make informed decisions about what's best for you, your family, your loved ones, your friends, whatever. So my guest today is Dr. Richard Webby. He's a member of the Department of Infectious Diseases at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Studies on the Ecology of Influenza and Animals. He is the perfect person to have this conversation with. Again, guys, it's so important that we understand the facts and the science behind what's going on right now. There's a lot of misinformation floating around out there still, even a year or so into this. And my goal today is to provide you with facts based in science, based on the best knowledge that we have currently, so that you can make those informed decisions about what's best for you and your family. I want to address some of the concerns about the vaccines and help you make informed decisions in regards to that as well. So, uh, we'll be right back right after this quick commercial break. Please don't go anywhere. This is really important. And we're back. And today I have Dr. Webby on the show, and we're going to have a conversation, kind of the status of COVID and the importance of the vaccines and just kind of answer some general questions about what life is 
like currently and maybe kind of what, what we see as we're moving forward. So we kind of have an idea of, of what to expect and what we can do to kind of do our part to help bring this whole thing to an end. So thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, sir. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself in your background? Yeah, so I'm a, a virologist. Um, so I, I've been at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee for some 20 years now. I'm a, a New Zealander by birth. Um, but so we have a, a research program here, usually studying influenza. Um, we, it's sort of a number of different aspects of that virus, uh, you know, about where it comes from, its emergence from animals, uh, you know, a lot of sort of similarities to the COVID-19, but, you know, these flu starts in animal populations moved over to humans. We try and understand a little bit more about that process and also more from the translational aspects of flu. You know, how do we get better vaccines? How do we select the most appropriate vaccines? How do we monitor the continuing evolution of flu viruses? And of course, you know, with a sort of expertise in that area, of course, and, and like many virologists, we're now sort of also working um, at least some of our time on the sort of COVID-19 pandemic and the virus that causes it. How do you feel like things are going right now with COVID? Do you feel like we're kind of heading in the right direction or do we still have work that we need to do? What's this kind of the status? Yeah, we for sure have more work to do. Uh, the real question is how much more work. And un unfortunately, I don't think anyone really knows that. I think, you know, if you put where we are now in the context of the pandemic as a whole, we're, we're seem to be at least US and a lot of other countries in a pretty good spot uh, in terms of current activity. So it is certainly low. Um, we know that could change at any, any time now, but, um, you know, vaccination rates, although I think they're, you know, not as high as we would like them to be. They are steadily climbing and seem to be getting better. So, you know, those two things together, low activity, vaccination, climbing, if we could stay like this, we'd be in a good spot. But of course, you know, the constant of this pandemic is it's always changing and that's the same of any pandemic. So, you know, ask me that same question and a month later and we could be in a completely different boat. Have a different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I've been on, it's been, my oldest is immunocompromised. So we've been on relatively tight lockdown for almost 400 something days now. And, uh, he has had his second vaccine. I got my first about a week and a half ago. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to kind of see people in real life again. <laughs> yeah, I know we all are right. Yeah. And kind of get back to it. Yeah. Do you have any current concerns about like where we are? Like we seem to be trending in the right direction. Is there anything that really concerns you? The, Big thing, and I, you know, it's it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. But the the big concern right now is, you know, we're responding, and when I say we, the sort of royal we, we're responding to this dip and lull in cases in the U.S. by opening things back up. You know, which of course, the the time to open things back up is when there's a lull. But the concern is, of course, is that going to lead to a rebound in cases? You know, particularly, and I think we'll get to this maybe a bit later on, is these variant viruses that are out there. So, you know, there are viruses out there that are, you know, a little bit different than the ones we've faced over the past 12 months. And so with this opening up, you know, are we opening the door for some of these variant viruses to get a bit of a foothold? So, yeah, that's a big concern. I mean, in an ideal world, we'd want to hang on, I think, for a little bit longer just to make sure that, yeah, we 
sort of put the squeeze on this virus as much as we can before we open back up. But, you know, at the same time, you know, as you said earlier, we do appreciate the desire from many people to, to, to get back out there as much as possible. I heard someone say this the other day and I really liked it. Like we didn't come this far to like give up now. Yeah. I mean, I, I would really, I, I hope that even when restrictions are lifted and things are opening back up, the people remain smart and, and safe and, and take the precautions that are, are recommended. Well, how does a new strain start? Like what causes strains to kind of diverge? So it's a property of, you know, most any virus that we deal with and it's the nature of these viruses that they continually mutate. So it's not like the case of a human cell where, you know, the human cell takes a lot of care when that cell divides that it accurately replicates it. So it duplicates identically. You know, with flu viruses, when they replicate, they don't do that. They like make a lot of mistakes and they put mutations throughout their genomes. And so when you combine that with, say, some external pressure, so it could be perhaps immunity in the person that that virus is replicating for, then you do select for those viruses that perhaps um, can escape that immunity. So it's a combination of the virus when it replicates, it makes a lot of mistakes and then some pressure put on that virus to select for those viruses that come out the other end that have an advantage. Um, and again, if you look at sort of these variants that we're most worried about right now, there seems to be two slightly different categories of those viruses. One that seems to transmit perhaps a little bit better you know, and so again, you can think if you know, if you're a virus, you're running around out there, you're making all these mutations. If by chance you make a mutation that allows you to transmit a little bit better, you know that's a huge advantage for a virus. So those viruses that can do that get selected for, and they can you know become dominant pretty quickly. The other category of mutation we're seeing is those that have mutations in these sites that we know our antibodies target. And so the, the concern there is that, you know, should these viruses spread a bit more widely, then you know, our current vaccines may be less effective against them. I know that was a very sort of muddled answer to question, but... That was a really good answer. And, and I guess I just want to know, do the viruses, do they adapt? Is there purpose to it? Like, are they just random mutations or do they specifically try to work around a vaccine? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really great question right we got to think about a virus all a virus is is a piece of genetic material covered by some protein so you know it's sort of nothing on its own we we tend to like to think of these things as you know a virus is thinking but of course it it doesn't have that capacity but so i think what probably is is the answer is that there is no necessary pattern to that mutation so the mutations are happening essentially randomly across the viruses it replicates but you know it's quite often the only ones we really see are the ones that occur in those key changes and those key sites and that's only because your body if you're infected with this soup of different viruses and you have immunity to those viruses you know the only ones that are going to be able to grow in you are those ones that escape your immunity so often it's only those ones we see you know the other ones are getting generated in your body but they're just getting cleared um, quickly as sort of the, through your normal immune system so yeah probably random uh, random occurrence but yeah, we're very much biased in what actually we see just because of how successful the viruses with those key changes are. What can we do to help limit the virus evolving into maybe a more dangerous strain or something that's harder to protect ourselves from? Yeah, and so, yeah, I wish there was a, a, a 
good answer to this. You know, you can do X and it's going to stop it happening. Uh, but that's not the case. So again, these viruses are going to change. There's nothing we can do about that. The only way we can limit or, or reduce the number of these variants that pop up is by reducing the number of people that get infected with these viruses. You know, and so the, it's a numbers game. The more people that get infected, the more chance there are that um, perhaps you know, the, the key mutations will occur. Um, that's actually interesting. You, know, you mentioned you have a um, the family member with a immunosuppressed to some degree, and it's quite interesting that that population of people can actually also be key to driving some of the emergence of these variants. Uh, and at, at one of the the so-called UK or B one one seven variant people might have heard of, there's some thought that that might have been generated actually in an immunocompromised person. The reason being that you know their immune systems aren't. Obviously, they're immunocompromised. Well, by, by definitions, means their immune system's not as ramped up as it could be. So often, the viruses can replicate for a little bit longer in those in those people. So there's just a little bit more time, a little bit more chance for these variants to occur in those individuals. And so, again, from the perspective of parts of the population, we you know, really need to protect um, then you know, the immunocompromised people, both from the perspective of protecting themselves, but also from reducing the emergence of these variants are a pretty key population. My son has CVID. He does at-home IVIG twice a week. And his immunologist had said that they were starting to, this was, I don't know, six months ago, whatever. They were starting to detect some of the antibodies for COVID in the IVIG medication. They were People were testing positive for having the antibodies, but they never got sick. And so they were thinking that was coming through with the IVIG medication. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. It's as more and more people in the community get infected, of course, then there's going to be more of those antibodies around. And we know it's probably, you know, a good 50% of people who get infected with this virus probably have no symptoms at all and don't even know they've been infected. So, you know, when they bowl on up to the blood donor center and, you know, have you been diagnosed with COVID, they'll tick the no box simply because they didn't, they don't, don't know they have. That was a little bit of comfort because it was sort of like he had some passive immunity, maybe. And so that was like a little bit of breathing room. I felt a little bit more comfortable with that because he was at least receiving that before we could get, you know, the vaccine. Let's talk about the vaccines, actually. I know there's three approved currently, the the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson. The Johnson & Johnson is a little bit different than the other two, right? Because the other two are mRNA-based. Yeah, so th- that's exactly right. So there are the the mRNA, um, sorry the the Pfizer and Moderna are you know, essentially the same vaccine. There's differences in how much RNA is in there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the platform and the idea is the same. They use this mRNA strategy. The Johnson and Johnson is um, essentially uses a, what we call an adenovirus strategy. So again, if we step back a little bit, the idea of both of these vaccines is to get the gene for the key protein of this. SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, the so-called spike protein. They want to get the gene into your, so when you get injected, that gene gets into your cells, your cells start making that protein and presenting it to your immune system. And then your immune system starts cranking out antibodies and cells, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The two vaccines out there do that slightly different ways. The mRNA simply delivers the gene. um, They take the gene itself, they cover it in a lot of lipids, and that just 
sort of gets across your cell membranes into your cell, that process starts. The J&J do it a slightly different way. They hijack uh, a common cold virus, so what we call an adenovirus. Um, they cripple that virus, so the virus can't induce disease anymore. But what viruses do is attach to host cells and get in their own genetic material inside the cell. So what the J&J strategy is to essentially hijack that adenovirus, they put the gene for the coronavirus spike protein in it. Um, that adenovirus attaches to your cell, um, releases that gene into your cell, and then you start making, your cell starts making the spike protein in your immune system. So again, the end result's the same. It's just they differ in how they get that gene into your host cell. Is there, I know there's a lot of, like currently, and I'm not asking to endorse one over the other, but there's a lot of people who are concerned that like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine showed like a 66% of efficiency versus what we saw like 95 or 96% of, of with the other two. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that they were tested at very different times on against very different strains. Is, is that sort of what the difference is in the numbers? So people should be comfortable getting whichever one they can get a hold of. Yeah, absolutely. They that's uh, they should do that. If it's much more important at this stage to get whatever you can get rather than wait for something, you know, I think first these vaccines are all incredibly effective. If you know, I think when FDA started out and they were planning for these vaccines to come along, they sort of set set a bar of fifty percent effective. So you know, anything over fifty percent would be approved. You know, these vaccines are all passing that in flying colours. So they are one incredibly effective vaccines. Um, but you're dead right. I think the difference between the Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson early on in the pandemic. Um, the virus was much more similar. So, you know, the virus is circulating in all different parts of the world was essentially the same. Um, and over the course of the pandemic, and it's, again, it's what we expected, it's what these viruses do, they evolve, you know, over the course of time. And so now there's all these different variants in different parts of the world. So, you know, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine essentially only had to protect from one strain, and that was the exact strain they had in the vaccine, whereas the Johnson & Johnson had to tackle... You know, both the viruses that were circulating that were in the vaccine, but also some of these variants as well. So, um, yeah, very, very difficult. I know I know it's tempting to do, but very difficult to compare across these studies, unfortunately. Um, but again, want to take, might make that take a message. They're all really, really good vaccines. Yeah, because I know, I know like with the flu vaccine, uh, we get our flu shots every year. And I think sometimes, sometimes they're really effective and sometimes they're less effective. But like anything is better than nothing. Because maybe maybe the virus it can't spread past you and you can't infect somebody else, and uh, I I just I, I really hope people understand that. I, I think there's there is a a misunderstanding that that this was rushed to the market, and and people are kind of af afraid I think or skeptical, but but this technology has been in the works for like a really long time. Was it just that everybody started putting their heads together? in a crisis to make it happen finally or yeah no, i think it's it's interesting right and i again i understand some of the concern that this was rushed through there's there's no way this can be safe but it's almost like the process is is being um dinged for being prepared so you know people have been preparing for this exact scenario for a long time and a lot of this is driven by flu so a lot of the threats from some of the bird flus and um, so, you know, countries have pandemic plans and FDA has 
plan for scenarios like this when there's an emerging virus, they have to get a vaccine out quick. So, you know, it was pre-planned for how you can speed up the process without cutting corners, but rather than doing, for example, rather than doing, you know, one, your phase one, your first set of studies first, waiting for the data for that to come, playing around with it, then starting the next, then starting the next, and then starting manufacture, you know, they've decided, well, you know, let's do some of these overlap a little bit. So you get the first sets of data from one um, that allows you to start the next. Yeah, you know, you'll still continue that first stage. And if any, you know, certainly any signals came up at the end of it, you would stop. But you're starting that second one when you get enough confidence in it rather than waiting till the end. And the same thing with manufacture. You know, they started manufacturing these vaccines before they had the sort of final proof that they were effective. So again, it's, it's not like they missed out on doing anything. It's just they put these plans into place to do it. And as, as you said, Rob, I think it's a, it's a really good point. Um, you know, there's only one licensed vaccine that uses either mRNA or these adenovirus, and that's an Ebola virus um, vaccine that hasn't been used much at all. But it's not, they're not new technologies at all. The adenovirus technology that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses has been around for, you know, decades. Um, the mRNA is a, a little bit um, younger in its infancy, but again, it's still been around for, you know, I know we wrote a, a, a sort of a commentary on mRNA vaccines some 10 odd years ago, um, you know, about the promise they showed. And that's, so again, it's, you know, we've got at least a, at least a decade's worth of um, understanding of these mRNA vaccines. They've been into tens of thousands of people in clinical trials for other infectious diseases. So, yep, I mean, it's been a tremendous, a tremendous, uh, I think, achievement to get these vaccines out of course of the hand. But a lot of that is because of prior planning that's gone on. I know a lot of a lot of the uh, the companies are even working together for like the the greater good to get as much out as we can, and, and I guess like this kind of situation brings everybody together to some extent, <laughs> and we we figure out how to get out of it, you know. Yeah, that's great, and uh, yeah, clearly it's I think it's you know one of the ones was GSK I think or that sort of lent over to help manufacture some of these um, other vaccines because at least at least their early vaccines that they put didn't really past the mustard so they you know again reached out and now are using their manufacturing capacity to as you say to help out some of the others so from i think it's you know it's really it's it's overall there are a lot of you know positives that have come out of the response i did forget to ask you this and i wanted to find out because i've heard people talk about this why does the moderna and the pfizer require two shots and the johnson and johnson only one is is that just a difference in technology it is a difference in technology and, and it Maybe that it's just difference in testing and difference in strategy, right? The, you know, these these vaccines came out again. They are, this is not from a perspective of safety. These vaccines, but you know, to be honest, there wasn't probably wasn't a lot of optimization in each of them, right? So Moderna and Pfizer. Um, you know, if you read textbooks on you know what do you need when you know, the human population faces a new pathogen, you're probably going to need two doses of vaccine to get a good response. So they went in, they pushed with this two-dose strategy um, and, you know, probably never did the studies to look whether one dose was enough. And I think, you know, that's what we're starting to learn now that, you know, some people actually respond pretty well to one as well. So it may be that one dose of the Pfizer or the Moderna may have been okay as well but again that just wasn't in their planning they planned for a two-dose vaccine um, whereas um, Johnson & Johnson again planned for I think understanding perhaps the advantages of a one-dose regime 
um, and went in with that, keeping in mind they probably had a little bit more clinical data on one dose of their vaccine. Yeah, I was going to say they, they probably, and they've had more time yeah. because they came out later, so they, they're able to kind of learn from what has been going on and take a different approach. Are you, are you happy with the current rollout? Are we doing enough? Do we need to do more? I mean, more is always better, but like, are we doing, are we doing enough? Um, yeah, more is always better. There's, there's no doubt. Uh, yeah, that's easy. I'm sort of, I'm someone who's sitting in my sort of laboratory here and can say, well, no, we're not, not doing anywhere near enough, but you know, it's an incredibly complex thing to do, right. Is to roll these vaccines out and get them into people's arms. And so, um, from my perspective, it'd be great if we were, you know, a few hundred thousand more vaccines into people's arms. But, you know, the challenges are pretty impre- and are pretty great. And, you know, had you asked me maybe even this time 12 months ago, you know, would I be happy with, I'm not even sure, do you know, what, Rob, what the numbers of people are today have been immunized in the U.S.? I know it's like yesterday or the day before we were over 100 million doses yeah. that were like given. And so I think you what cut that in half because it's two doses for some and one dose for the other. So it's, it's a lot, it's just not enough. Yeah. So again, if we'd step back 12 months and you would ask me then, you know, if we were sitting here on sort of March the 16th, 2021 and sort of a hundred million doses in, how would you feel? I probably would have said there, well, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause I could have just as easily said, well, I don't think there'll be vaccine probably until mid 2021 at the earliest. So from that perspective, yeah, we're. I think we're actually doing a great effort. You know, clearly there's things that have gone wrong, and um, we could be better. But I think stepping back and looking at it, it's it's been a remarkable achievement. Yeah, we had to kind of learn as we go. I think, and there are things that we could have done better, obviously. And then there are things that I feel like we're doing we're doing really well, especially considering what we've been up against and how quickly this is, has evolved, and how sort of um, how complicated. It is, and then the various strains coming from different countries, and the fact that it's global. I mean, that's that's more complicated as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, no, I was just thinking. I mean, you you raise a good point there with the global aspect, right? We again, there are of course the, the number of people here in the U.S. getting immunized, but there are countless other countries around the globe that have nothing to date. And, and maybe that's uh, something we've also got to keep in mind as well to really get on top of this pandemic. It's not just a matter of you know, getting people in the US immunized and protected, but you know, to stop these variants occurring, they're going to occur in other parts of the world as well. So it's, you know, we're not out of the woods completely until we can get much more of the population globally um, immunized as well. Is there, I know, and I can't, I think it's the Fi- Pfizer I can't remember if it's Pfizer or Moderna that is 16, age 16 and above, and the other one is 18 and above. Is there a reason why there's the cutoff on the age? Like when when can we, when do you think we'll be able to see, like I'll be able to immunize my my two youngest, they're 12 and 15. Yeah, so that's a, another key point, right? And I think it, the reason the differences is just simply because of, uh, I think the way they set up their trials and they just didn't, that was their lower age group that they set in their clinical trial. So one has data for that younger age group, the other doesn't. But they're all now moving forward into doing these pediatric trials. So I, I understand, you know, Moderna has already started theirs. I, I believe Pfizer may have already, and I know Johnson & Johnson is getting ramped up to do theirs as well. So, you know, the, the clinical trials that are needed to get approval for that younger age group are going now. Um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure of the timeline for when they may be approved, um, but certainly they're, they're moving towards that you know, right now. Um, so yeah, looking at different dosing, et cetera, et cetera. And so like at this point in time, is, is it more important for the adults to be vaccinated than younger kids? I think so right now, um, but that's you know, mostly from a perspective of impact, uh, morbidity, mortality impact, right? So where is that most felt? And it does seem to be, you know, particularly the elderly and um, kids, luckily, have seemed to be spared from most, certainly not all, but certainly, you know, most of the, the, the severe impact from this. So again, when you're rolling out vaccine, um, you, know, you target those that are getting impacted most and then work your way down. Um, yeah, I think the other good thing is that it, unlike flu, where I think kids, school-age kids in schools really seem to be drivers of flu activity in the community, you know, again, with this virus, kids clearly do spread it. They clearly get infected, but, you know, are they, are they more of a driver for um, the virus in the community than other sectors, other populations? And it doesn't seem to be so with this virus. So, again, I think that's why they're sort of relegated to um, coming next. Like I'm a science and fact guy. So like when science and fact doesn't exist, like I, I don't know what to do. Right. So I, I don't know what's up and what's down. Cause you have to have a foundation to build from. And I think science and fact is that foundation that we build from. I hear a lot of people saying that there was a lot of flip-flopping back and forth, like masks are good. Then they're not good. Then it's, you should do six feet. Then you should do more than that or whatever. And they, and they look at it as nobody knows what they're talking about and, or there's confused message or something, but isn't, wouldn't it make more sense that we're learning as we go. And as we go, maybe in the beginning, we didn't think masks were absolutely essential, but as, as our knowledge of COVID has evolved, we recognize the importance that masking plays in prevention of spread. And, and so it's more along that lines than it's just, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think that's who we are certainly learning about the virus, but again, about the impact that all of these interventions have, um, you know, I think it's even interesting, you know, look at what's happened to other respiratory virus infections with all of these interventions. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's been no flu anywhere for, well, not no, but, you know, incredibly, incredibly low levels of flu activity for the past 12 months around the globe. Um, levels of some of these other common cold viruses are way down, RSVs way down. You know, so I think... Uh, again, at the start of this pandemic, people will say, well, a lot of these intervention strategies probably don't work against respiratory viruses. We now know they work great against SARS. They also seem to work great against everything else. Is that something we've learned about everything everything else as we go through this process? So yeah, we're so much learning as we go. I think it's interesting though, sort of the communication of that message is, you know, have there been mistakes made, you know, where it's, you know, the masking message for, you know, as an example, is there a difference between telling people, you know, no need to wear masks, you know, masks don't do anything versus, look, we just don't know. It doesn't seem to be any evidence at this stage. So I think there's that fine balance too between um, the public health messaging that has to be done, you know, versus sort of the, the science behind it that quite often isn't black or white, it's grey, whereas your messages tend to have to be more black or white. So and, and I think that's a struggle and a, a bit of a challenge for science communication as well. I don't think that people give you and the other public health care officials like Fauci and um, you know, I've, I've got some other friends who are epidemiologists and virologists more locally. I, I don't think that we give any of you guys enough credit for having managed this as well as we did. I mean, was it perfect? It wasn't perfect. But how many lives did we save? I mean, it could have been a lot worse 
than, than what it was. And we're learning as we go. And so I really feel like, like you guys are heroes in my book for one thing, the nurses, the doctors, the central workers. I mean, they're all heroes. You guys are all heroes. I wouldn't have been able to keep my kids safe if there weren't people out there delivering groceries. Right. And so like, to me, they're, they're the unsung heroes of this, this whole thing. Absolutely. To expect perfection in an evolving situation that none of us have lived through before. It's just crazy. And so I, I think you guys have done an awesome job and I'm safe. My family's safe. Everybody that I love and care about is safe because we listened to what you guys had to say. So thank you for, for doing that. I really appreciate that. Appreciate the comments. Thank you. What do you wish that people would understand about the vaccines and just how important they are? Yeah, I think the vaccine is the way out of this. Uh, and I know everybody wants to get out of this, right? There's, there's no one that wants to stay where we are. Um, I don't. Yeah, no, I sure don't. And I, I sort of, I've spent 20 years um, sort of studying a, a pandemic and then one comes along. It, if, if anyone wants us to stay, it'll be someone like me, right? But I surely don't <laughs> want to either. Um, and again, I think that, that, yeah, the vaccine is so critical to, to getting out the other side. You know, if you look at, the epidemics or pandemics, they go in these waves. So, the, you know, the up and downs that we've seen, um, I hope we don't continue to see them, but certainly the, you know, I think it's even money that we're going to see another rise and another peak at some stage down the road. The only way we can guarantee that not happening is with the vaccine right now. And, and yeah, I, I do understand the you know, hesitancy of some people for it. Um, but again, it comes back to that message we talked about earlier. If we can just get that vaccine into enough people, um, you know, personally, I think this virus is going to, it won't go away, but I, I think it's going to end up like a common cold virus. Um, if we can get enough people immunized quickly enough and really put the brakes on it before it has enough opportunity to you know, mutate and evolve even more. What would you say to especially younger people, you know, they feel like this is only something that impacts people with like health conditions. Is it important for even people who are in good health to get vaccinated? Yeah. So, and again, from two points, right? Yes. The chances of sort of your middle-aged or young, healthy person getting terribly sick from this virus are small, but it's not zero, right? So there is still a chance of those people getting ill, getting sick, um, so there is there is no zero risk. Um, but the other thing is, and I think this is the biggest selling point to that group of people, you're not getting vaccinated to protect yourself. You're getting vaccinated to protect others. And I know it's a message you know, we keep hearing, but it's it's so true in this case. Even some of the most susceptible parts of the population, again, maybe like your son, like the elderly, they may even get vaccinated, but that vaccines typically don't work as well in those populations. So you could say, well, you know, I don't need to get vaccine. They can get vaccinated. But you know, often those vaccines don't work as well in that high-risk population. So the only way we can really protect them is for everyone else to get vaccinated, to stop that transmission, to reduce the virus spreading in the community. So you know, it, it is all about getting vaccinated for others in this case. And then lower the risk of mutations that would be seriously problematic. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Everybody wants to know when things are going to go back to normal. Is that ever going to happen or is it going to be like a new normal? What do you, like, what do you, what do you anticipate us looking at going forward? Yeah. So uh, again, you can probably ask 10 experts on this and get, you know, probably three or four or five different answers. I'm, I'm a little bit in the boat that 
I don't think this is a new normal. So I think we will go back to normal. Um, and why do I say that? If you look back sort of over history, we have had other coronaviruses come over from animal populations into humans. You know, we have a number of other cold-causing coronaviruses that circulate in us naturally. And so my gut feeling is this, I don't think there's any reason that this particular virus, when there's enough population immunity, won't actually go into that pattern as well. You know, maybe causing a, a wintertime sniffle or cough or cold. Um, so I, I think that's an absolute possibility here. So again, um, uh, yeah, I think we'll return to essentially where we were normal before. I don't think, um, you know, where we are even now with low activity has necessary to be our normal. Um, of course, it, you know, what I can't tell you is when that's going to happen. Right, right. Um, and I don't think it's going to be certainly in the next six months or so. But, you know, uh, um, you know, let's chat again after that and see where we're at. One of the other things, and we talked about messaging and stuff like that, what is life like after you're vaccinated? Like once I'm vaccinated you know, the, the fully vaccinated. So two weeks after my last dose, right. What does that free me up to do? What can I now safely do that I couldn't do before? Yeah. And that's, that's a, again, a great questioning and comes back to this again, the public health messaging behind this, right? So, you know, we would like a, a black and white answer that you've had two doses of vaccine. You're more than a, you know, two weeks out from that second dose, you're good to go. Um, you're protected. Uh, you know, and then there's a reasonable chance that's actually true. Um, you know, but the problem, what we don't know for sure is that that is true. Certainly we know from the studies that you can be protected, um, or at least, you know, and take the Moderna Pfizer example, you know, 95% of people are going to be protected from um, getting symptomatic COVID. There's still 5% of people, of course, who do go on to get symptomatic COVID. Uh, but what we don't know is with that other 95% of the population, whether they were still um, infected and potentially transmitting that virus on to others. Um, again, I think that they certainly would do a poorer job of that than an unvaccinated person, but can they do it at all? And that's, again, why this messaging certainly early on was, yes, you've got your two vaccines, you're two week out, but let's continue to keep that mask on. Let's continue to do the social distancing. It's because of that fact we don't really have a good handle on whether you can still get infected and potentially give that virus to others. I think, you know, as we go along, we're going to get more and more info on that. And I think the answer is going to be, if you're vaccinated, the chances of you doing that are pretty slim. But again, we, we don't have a good handle. And that's, again, why I think, you know, the CDC has been a little bit cautious. They're starting to sort of opening up their messaging right now. So now if you you can have sort of a, a cohort of happily vaccinated people socializing <laughs> a little bit and, and you know, bringing in... Um, your next door neighbor, if you know, they've been huddled up. But there is still that sort of just layer of uncertainty about that. Um, and yet it's not because, I, I, you know, I've seen sort of on social media posts, people saying, well, if I can't take my mask and social distance, why would I want to get vaccinated? It makes no difference. Um, it clearly makes a difference, but we're just, we're just not 100% sure about um, some of these other factors yet. Okay, so once I'm vaccinated and like my parents are vaccinated, uh, am I at risk oldest is vaccinated. Can we safely go over and visit my parents, even if my two youngest aren't vaccinated? So it depends a little bit on the activity of your two youngest, right? So again, looking at the CDC guidance, if, you know, if you've been very, very careful with 
you know, your two youngest and they haven't had a whole lot of interaction. So their chances of being infected from the community are small. Then, yeah, you're probably good to go. But, you know, the concern is, well, there's those two. They may have been, if they've, you know, if they've been at school, for example, or they've been out somewhere else. Um, you know, the danger is that they do bring the virus into that, what, you know, the cookout or whatever you're having. Um, you know, and again, particularly with the susceptible people in your family and your and the elderly who, again, they've been vaccinated, but, you know, in those more sort of risk groups, if you like, we're not sure how well that vaccine works. There still is a risk of them getting infected with the virus. It's much, much lower than before, um, but that's the, that's, that's the potential problem. If I'm vaccinated, can I safely visit with people who are not vaccinated? Is it more of an issue for me or for them? Uh, so in, the, in that case, it's, pro, it's not so much of an issue for them, I think. That, yeah, the chances of you, but the, the, the you giving it to them is, is very, very slim. But I guess the, yeah, the, the potential dangers are of potentially they giving it to you um, and then sort of you coming coming back home. Again, you're, because you're vaccinated, you're probably, even if you were infected, you're probably not going to feel symptoms or anything. But you know, there is still that slight risk that perhaps you may come home. And again, in, in your particular case, you know, give it to your, um, expose your, your son to it. Yeah, that would be a problem. Yeah. So again, I think, again, I think we need to put this in perspective. The chances are probably slim of that happening, but you know, we don't know. It's, it's probably not none, but we don't, know yet whether it's you know is, is it a 99 percent you know chance you're going to be fine is it a 90 percent chance is it a 50 percent chance you know that's that's the data we don't have yet and does and i should have asked this earlier so i'll probably move this back to the other section but do the vaccines do they stop you from getting infected or do they stop you from getting sick from the infection does that make sense yeah it does and probably a bit of both, but mostly stop you from getting sick. Um, so, you know, we know from, you know, a number of other vaccine studies that you can be vaccinated and still get infected. Um, but say, you know, let's, let's take it. So in a normal um, unvaccinated individual with the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus infection, um, you know, replication, the virus may get in, it takes a you know, few days to get hold, and then you may be in f- shed virus or replicating virus for, let's say, seven days, you know, so, and you get virus, you know, so you get a, a whole heap of virus you're shedding for about seven days. What we think with a vaccinated person, they may still be infected, um, but what's going to happen, it's going to stop the disease symptoms. And um, there's reasons for that we could potentially get into. But um, but maybe if you still get infected, you're not going to be shedding for that seven days. Maybe you're only going to be shedding for three days. And instead of shedding, you know, whatever level of virus, you're now shedding 100 times less for those three days. And so that's kind of, you know, your overall risk of transmitting um, is much smaller, but it, but it's still there. So yeah, it's, it's a long winded answer to your question, but uh, and it's because I think if you look, even if you look at some of the early studies with these coronas and, and even some of the sort of the animal model studies that people did, um, we know that people tend to get sicker when the virus gets lower in your respiratory tract. Um, and we know from, from other vaccine studies and again, from some of these the preclinical testing of these um, vaccines that were done, 
um, with immunization, it's much easier to keep the virus out of your lower respiratory tract. So it's much easier to stop people from getting that severe disease because you're stopping the virus getting down to the lungs where you don't want it. If you look at the very upper respiratory tract where the virus grows as well, it's much harder for your immune system to actually clear the virus from that particular location. So um, again, easy to stop the virus getting down into your lungs with a vaccine. So that stops the disease. Much harder to really completely stop do sterilizing immunity um, to block that virus in the upper respiratory tract. So you still get a little bit of virus up there. And so that's why it's important for people who are vaccinated to still mask up when they're they're out in public and outside of your house? That's exactly why. Yeah, because it's that virus that's replicating up here. Sorry, I tap my microphone there. It's <laughs> it's that it's it's that virus that's replicating your upper respiratory tract that's getting transmitted, not not the stuff deep down your lung. I guess my last question to you is, do you think that we've actually learned anything from this, like as a society? I know scientifically we have, but do you think that, that we'll be prepared for the next one? Because it's probably more of an if, not a when, right? Or when, not an if. Yeah, it's always going to be a when than an if. And it's, I mean, it could be an if. if it, is it going to be another coronavirus? Is it going to be an influenza virus? Is it going to be something we're not even prepared for at all? Um, so yeah, something else is going to come along. Um, I, I struggle with this question a little bit because Again, had you asked me 12, well, maybe not even 12 months ago, let's even go back before the pandemic, you know, could I have envisaged a scenario where people in the US or, you know, any part of the world are told to go home and stay home and sort of don't leave your house for, you know, weeks on end and then after that don't interact socially? I would have suggested that's never going to happen. So, you know, the fact that it did to me is, is a real positive, but, you know, I just hope... You know, the fact that you know, overall this pandemic, um, you know, clearly catastrophic, but it could have been a whole lot worse. I just, yeah, you know, I, I hope that, you know, the next time around that people are as willing to go through the, and of course there are pains to doing that, staying at home, right, both economically and socially um, as well. So I, I just hope that people are prepared to go through the pain again when these things comes out because it, you know, it clearly works. Do you think that at a government level and a medical institutional level, like, have we learned something from this so that, um, you know, that we can, we can more easily expand hospital capacity, for example, or make sure that there's enough ventilators to cover something like this if it were to happen again? Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, so that's these pandemic plans that are put in place, you know, of course, they're, they're plans and they remain a plan until they're actually tested. And yeah, unfortunately, the only way to real test was with a pandemic. And I think, I think even a great example of this early on, so the rollout, we had the tests come along very early on. Um, so that was great. Um, but there was no swabs to swab any body with. Mm-hmm. There was no media to put that swab in to take it to the lab. There was no masks for the personal in the hospital to deal with. So, you know, these supply chain things, which, yeah, people knew about, but I didn't think probably most people didn't believe they would have such an impact. And we're still dealing with that now. Um, so these are things that I think can be corrected to some degree, right, through you know, different different ways of managing stockpiles, different ways of managing the supply chain. So, you know, I think things like that we absolutely have learned about and we absolutely do a better job of next time. Yeah, I hope so. Because I, I my fear is that like if it doesn't happen for a while, we become complacent. And mm-hmm. and I really I was totally caught off guard by this. And I feel like I don't ever want to be caught off guard again. So there's certain things that I'll keep around the house just in the event that something happens. Uh, because I want to toilet paper, maybe. Yeah. That some bleach wipes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. some Lysol spray. 
and and just you know just because I, I learned the hard way that if if something like this comes along, those things are incredibly important, mm-hmm. and they're difficult to come by. And so I'm I'm just hoping that you know we stockpile things like the swabs and and all the things that we need to successfully administer testing to whatever comes next, and that we can uh, you know stay united and and keep it keep it about the science and about keeping people safe and leave everything else out of it because I think that yeah. complicates it and that makes it harder. I'm with you on that. Where can people find you? Uh, so you can find me. So there is a, if you head to the St. Jude website, so www.stjude.org and, and you can just Google Webby, W-E-B-B-Y within that, you'll um, head to my website, which is going to gonna get updated here sometime soon, I think. So don't, <laughs> don't, don't, be, don't be put off by the state of it now. Come no back judgments, in a little guys, bit. No judgments, yeah, He's been busy. No judgments, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, yeah, and have a look and yeah, see what's going on at the institution here and um, see what we're all about for sure. Well, I really, really appreciate your time. This was such a cool conversation and I'm, you can't reach everyone, right? I know that. And it's incredibly frustrating for me that you can't, but I want to reach the people that we can reach and maybe that helps to save somebody's life. And so I, I feel like it's important to get accurate information out to, to help people make informed decisions so that they can do what's right for their family and for themselves and for the people that they love and care about. So thank you very much for everything that you do and, and for your time uh, on the show today. Well, thank you. And the same goes back to you. So what you don't rob is very, very important as well. You have, I don't know what day it is. That's one of the problems with the pandemic. I've been on lockdown for so long. <laughs> everything is like one big long day. It's a Tuesday today. It's a Tuesday. Okay. So, so have a great week <laughs> and, uh, hey, you too. and stay safe. Same. Thank right, you. Take care. Before closings out today, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Webby for taking the time to come on the show and to help educate us on everything we need to know about COVID in the current circumstances and the vaccines and, you know, why it's so important and what we can expect after we're vaccinated and what we can expect on the other end of this COVID nightmare. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. I hope that you guys can take this information and and use it to make informed decisions about how you move forward with yourself, your loved ones, your family, friends, like I said, whatever. So uh, facts matter when it comes to life and death things like COVID. So please be safe. You can find Dr. Webby at stjude.org. I'll have a link in the show notes below so that you can uh, check out his information if you would like to do so. And you can find me at theautismdad.com. All of my social links are at the top of the page. Please subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already done so, just hit that subscribe button on any one of your favorite podcasting apps. I'd love it if you did that. I really appreciate it. And if you haven't already done so, please rate the podcast. It really helps me to know what I'm doing right and wrong and and how I kind of shape things as I go forward. So with all that said... Have a great weekend, guys. I will talk to you next Friday. Thanks. Bye. Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills, such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross-trains motor movement, visual, auditory, and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games. Strength and connections allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com, that's K-I-N-U-U.com, and be sure to use the code THEAUTISMDAT at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st.